This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. By the time you hear this, Microsoft may have released a new version of Windows 10 that includes a number of interesting features. There's one feature I was surprised and frankly glad to see, and I wanted to share it with you. But first, let's talk a little bit about computer hard drives. For what may seem like ages, we've been storing stuff on electromechanical drives in our amateur radio computers. Everything from your hand software to your station logs and... Of course, all those digital photos you probably have. I have gigabytes worth of them. In case you're unfamiliar, these drives record information magnetically on metal disks. The disk spins at thousands of RPM, and there's a small device that floats just above the surface. This little probe reads data from the disk and writes new data to the disk. Imagine a turntable for vinyl records, and you get an idea what I'm talking about. Except... Unlike a record needle, the hard drive read-write head never touches the disk. That would be very bad. Computers have used this approach to information storage for decades. I remember seeing an NCR mainframe computer in the early 70s that used enormous removable hard drives. I don't know what kind of storage capacity they had, but even the smallest drive in your station computer is a giant by comparison. Today, you can get on Amazon and order a hard drive with terabytes of storage in a package that'll rest right in the palm of your hand. But I digress. There are two problems with electromechanical hard drives that have been with us since the beginning. Speed and reliability. Whenever you want to access a file or start a program, that little read-write head has to go racing all over the disk stopping at various places just to grab the information you need. But no matter how fast it moves, all this jumping around takes time. And when you have that probe flying all over a delicate disk at blinding speed, something is bound to go wrong. Modern hard drives are really pretty reliable, and you can usually count on years of service. But someday, the drive is going to fail. That's guaranteed. What you're about to hear should chill the blood of any computer owner. It's an actual recording of a 500-gigabyte MaxTor disk drive. Its read-write head is stuck in a loop, and it's reading nothing whatsoever. This disk is headed for the trash heap. This is why I always encourage listeners to make regular backups of their station computers. I back mine up once a week, and I use a piece of software that does the backup in the background. When I was working at ARRL headquarters, they ran backups every night. If you're lucky, your computer will detect that a drive is getting a little bit flaky, and it'll warn you of this. Electromechanical drives often start behaving a little strangely, usually weeks in advance of a failure. But in recent years, there's been a big transition to solid-state drives. These drives use integrated circuit assemblies to store data. I like to think of them as little boxes stuffed with memory chips, and that's actually pretty close to the truth. Solid-state drives used to be pretty expensive, but they've been falling rapidly in price, while at the same time they've been increasing in their storage capacity. 
In my station computer, I have a 128 gig hard drive. This is a solid state drive that I installed oh, several years ago. I use it to store any software that needs to run at maximum speed. The WSJTX software that I use to operate FT8 and other digital modes is on that drive, for example. I'm still using electromechanical drives for data storage, but I have a feeling that those drives will be riding into the sunset one of these days. Solid-state drives are just so superior in so many ways. I mean, their speed is phenomenal. I think that's the biggest thing from my standpoint. They're also a lot more rugged than traditional drives. You can drop a solid-state drive, and chances are it'll keep performing as usual, although I don't recommend trying this. However, and there's always a however, isn't there? Solid-state drives can fail. You can only read and write to them a certain number of times before the memories deteriorate. Now, this is a long time to be sure, years really, but when they fail, they do so almost instantly and spectacularly. That shiny solid-state device can turn itself into a brick in less time than it took me to speak these last few words. So, as with traditional drives, the mantra is backup, backup, backup. But wouldn't it be nice if your computer could also warn you of a pending solid-state drive failure? Well, the new version of Windows 10, they were calling it Preview Build 20226 when I was recording this podcast, will have a new health monitoring feature that they say will detect abnormalities in solid-state drives. You'll see a message suddenly popping up on your desktop that reads, A storage device may be at risk of failure and requires your attention. There's also a clickable link that'll load up Windows 10's hard drive management and backup options, and it also provides more detail on why Windows sent the notification to you in the first place. When they say it needs your attention, they mean it. You have to stop whatever you're doing and immediately run whatever backup routine you use. This isn't a warning about a failure days or weeks down the road. We're talking minutes or maybe hours if you're lucky. The new Windows build will include an enhanced selection in the settings and system menu called Drive Health. Now, unless you have the new version, don't go looking for it now because you won't find it. But when you do have it, that's where you'll see the estimated remaining life of your drive, its current temperature, and any warnings in red text so you can't miss it. There's also the option to back up now for your convenience, which is a good thing to do. No doubt Microsoft will be calling all this to our attention in the next release, but be sure to look for it. I'm on the telephone with Scott Tilly, V-E-7-T-I-L. Good afternoon, Scott. Hey, Steve. How are you doing today? Good. You've been in the news uh, recently about uh, what I consider to be an amazing achievement, and that was you received a signal from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft, which is orbiting over Mars. Uh, what, 40 million miles away, give or take? Yeah, it's about 60 million miles uh, when I did the recording. And, yeah, it's in orbit around Mars and was able to uh, extract some orbital parameters from the signal as well. How did you know it was the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter? I, I know that one story had said that uh, you had received what was an unmodulated uh, carrier. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. It's an unmo it, I detected an unmodulated carrier from the uh, spacecraft. The, uh, the signal was quite weak for my small antenna. But the, the way we could identify the signal is from... Um, the frequency, and also the uh, orbital characteristics that we were able to record. 
Okay, and you said you were able to extract some uh, telemetry, is that correct? Uh, No telemetry extraction, but what we were able to monitor is the actual Doppler shift of the signal. So that Doppler shift um, is unique to the spacecraft, and from that I was able to measure its orbital period, which matched MRO. That's excellent. Well, can you describe what sort of receiving system you use to pull this off? I have a uh, 60-centimeter dish, a two-foot diameter dish. And then I've assembled a bunch of plumbing parts and some stuff that I found on eBay, filters and whatnot, into a very basic uh, X-band down converter. So then uh, from there, we take the uh, down converted uh, signal and run it into a software-defined radio. And that's all locked to the GPS frequency reference. So I've got a very accurate um, frequency. And from there, we just display it on a computer program called GQRX. Well, I was going to ask what software you use to actually display the signal rather than you weren't hearing this audibly in other words yeah we could hear it audibly oh you could yes yeah if you uh if you replay the uh the video that was shared on my uh, twitter feed you can hear the doppler affected carriers sweeping through the audio passband well that's pretty incredible to me to be able to uh, receive something like that that distance when you say it was weak i'm sure it must be exquisitely weak that would be kind of like a weak signal dx communication on uh, vhf bands or or even on hf if you're into that any of the uh, listeners that may be uh, avid uh, cw operators would know what i mean um, your your ears kind of get tuned to that um weak signal sound or whatever being able to pull something out of the noise you said your dish is i believe you said is two feet in diameter, is that correct, your parabolic dish? That's correct. And you're using a X-band converter to convert to what? What was your intermediate frequency? Um, approximately 1.6 gigahertz. Okay, and then uh, from there it was direct into the software-defined receiver? Yeah, that's right. A lot of modern software-defined receivers are good to uh, 3 or 4 gigahertz now. So that opens up a wide range of IF frequencies to use where you don't need to use an old analog radio. And it makes for uh, easier locking of uh, uh, local oscillators. Uh, In this case, there's two. There's one in the software-defined radio, and there's also one in the uh, the X-band down converter. And what sort of software-defined radio was it? Uh, It's an Edis uh, B200. Actually, if the truth be known, there's two uh, software-defined radios in the system. I uh, use a Wilkinson uh, combiner splitter to uh, split the data into the B200, and I also have a Blade RF2, which I use for a real-time receiver. So the, uh, the, the actual data that I'm recording for Doppler analysis goes into the B200, and a piece of software written by Case Bassa in the Netherlands uh, quantifies that data into a, a fast-field uh, or, or fast way a transform data file, and then I uh, display the uh, basically the uh, qualitative data on GQRX with the Blade RF. That allows me to interact with the tracking mounts and whatnot in real time. So if I just uh, azimuth and elevation of the tracking mount, I can see the signal strength change and keep the uh, signal peaked on Mars. And I seem to recall during uh, an interview or perhaps something that you had posted on Twitter, that there was something about the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that made it, I don't want to say easy to receive because it obviously isn't, but is it, uh, is it the fact that it's more powerful than uh, most of the other spacecraft at, at that distance? Yeah, the MRO, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, is 
um, it's a science mission, and it takes exquisite images of the surface of Mars, but it also serves as a relay satellite for a lot of the assets that are in Martian orbit, uh, particularly and on the on Martian surface. So it has a rather large dish antenna on the spacecraft that is uh, aimed at Earth as much as possible, relaying data when necessary and maintaining uh, ground lock to the uh, uh, Earth stations on Earth. So it just makes it easier to hear. This isn't the first time you've done this. I recall back in, uh, what was it, 2018, you managed to find a satellite that had been presumed to be dead? Oh, that's right. Yeah, the IMAGE uh, mission. And how did you do that? Um, it was a very different process. IMAGE uh, uh, emits on S-band, and I used a omnidirectional search antenna to detect that signal. IMAGE uh, is in a higher Earth orbit above the Earth and averages uh, at, at uh, apogee about uh, uh, 38,000 kilometers. I recall reading that, uh, who was it, NASA or JPL was uh, astonished that you uh, managed to find it, that it was still alive? Yeah, image is more of a tale of um, a needle in a haystack. It's not necessarily a weak signal. Um, it's just that nobody was expecting it to be there and just happened to be collecting data and, and notice a signal um, that wasn't in the catalog that I created and then being able to ID the uh, actual spacecraft itself from its Doppler uh, uh, shift emissions. In general, Scott, uh, when you're not uh, hunting down a million-mile-away satellites, uh, what are you doing in amateur radio? My, my hobby has evolved. I was um, really interested in um, weak signal and satellite communications when I was younger, um, VHF and UHF weak signal stuff. Um, I got into uh, EME for a little while, and then I spent about, I, I guess, almost 10 years playing around on the 2200-meter uh, band when it was an experimental uh, band uh, here in Canada and uh, contributed to a lot of testing and design work uh, for future amateur use of that band. And when it got uh, uh, approved for use in Canada, I got back into an old hobby of uh, tracking satellites, both by radio and optically, and uh, it's kind of led to this. And are you still uh, doing any EME, moon bounce work at all? I don't have any of that set up. I've kind of repurposed a lot of that hardware for my uh, uh, radio satellite tracking activities. Okay. And again, getting back to the equipment that you've been using for this, uh, and I know this is a difficult question, but is this something, Scott, that in theory any amateur could do, or is this kind of beyond the... Uh, the reach of uh, most hams? Um, I guess it depends on the, uh, the technical skill of the particular ham. I think anybody that's determined enough to uh, want to hear something around Mars could do it with uh, amateur means. Um, I guess it's just a, a matter of how much somebody wants to focus on something and, uh, and build some hardware. Well, again, what you've done is, uh, is incredible, and I assume that you're going to keep uh, listening for signals and... Uh, Hopefully, you'll find more spacecraft. Oh, absolutely. Um, right now, I'm using the same uh, tracking system to keep track of the Chinese uh, probe that's on its way to Mars. Uh, an amateur effort right now has uh, been able to actually decode and obtain the state vector, in other words, the position of the satellite in space from its telemetry. And we're using that information uh, along with Doppler analysis to confirm that the trajectory is valid and just keep the tabs on the mission as it goes to Mars. Unlike the other uh, probes that are headed that way, um, 
the Chinese are not releasing uh, much information about the probe and its actual position in space. So even JPL has uh, acknowledged that the amateur effort is probably the best place to look for uh, actual trajectory information on the status of the mission itself. <laughs> That's great. Well, Scott, thank you very much for your time, and uh, keep us posted on uh, on the rest of your work. Yeah, absolutely, Steve, and thanks for your time. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech. Produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.